Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we speak with Nuno Santos, head of CNN Portugal. That's the most important subject for us, it's to create a channel that talks for the Portuguese audiences. So, in our daily basis, we will have the issues, the pounds, the anchors that are really connected with the Portuguese audiences. Plus, some Balearic disco and a foreign desk special with the Prime Minister of Kosovo. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, it's time for our tall stories. This time, Monaco's Petri Burtsov tells about the second life of former hospital, Lapinlati Hospital in Helsinki, and how it has been embraced and defended by its citizens. An imposing neoclassical facade in light yellow overlooks the Baltic Sea in western Helsinki. Built in 1841 by the German architect Karl Ludwig Engel, the Lapinlati Hospital looks, at least to the locals, more like a stately mansion or a seat of government than a place of healing. That's because Engel, perhaps more than any other architect, has shaped the cityscape of Helsinki. He designed many of the city's most famous landmarks, including the iconic Helsinki Cathedral, the Senate Building, the Helsinki City Hall and the main building of the Helsinki University. The sense of stateliness is accentuated by the large, lush gardens that surround the hospital's main building. For over 160 years, that is until 2008, the Lapinlati Hospital functioned as a psychiatric ward, making it one of the oldest of its kind in Europe. When the hospital activity ended, the city of Helsinki rented the space out to grassroots organizations and it gradually became a bustling hub of artists, startup companies and urban activists that it is today. It is also home to two cafes, a museum, a restaurant and several artisanal shops focusing on local craft. It reaches peak popularity during the warm summer months when the sunsets of the Finnish summer bathe the area in a soft golden glow and the citizens of Helsinki flock to its coastal cliffs to enjoy drinks and a late evening dip in the sea. The area also features one of Finland's oldest public saunas, which welcomes visitors all year round. The former hospital area has also become a popular site for all kinds of grassroots events. Such sites serve an important social purpose in a city where the rents are high and there is a lack of non-commercial public spaces for citizens. Such is the popularity of the Lapinlati Hospital that when the city announced plans to sell the building and its surroundings to an international real estate investor with roots in Luxembourg, it caused a major backlash and sparked a citizens' initiative to protect the area. The developer pledged to renovate and to protect the hospital building, but it also unveiled plans to build a modern luxury hotel as well as two high-rises in the area. The plans caused a large-scale public outcry. Citizens were concerned that these plans would spell an end to the autonomous, open-for-all nature of the area and drive away the residents, artists, artisans, activists and entrepreneurs that are the key reason to its popularity. Many public bodies joined the activists in their opposition to the plans, among them the Finnish Heritage Agency, whose task it is to safeguard Finland's cultural heritage. 
They argued that privatizing the area would fundamentally change the social dynamics of this important urban space. Facing increasing criticism, the city council voted the proposal down in June 2020. The fate of the area is still far from certain, but for the time being, its current custodians have been given an extension. The more attention the area's fate receives and the more political infighting it sparks, the more popular the Lapinlahti Hospital gets among the locals. Helsinki has a strong tradition of urban activism and of turning disused public buildings into blossoming urban spaces. Former public buildings, such as hospitals and train depots, have spawned some of Helsinki's most popular music festivals, startup hubs and concert venues. Vibrant and livable cities need community spaces such as the Labinlahti Hospital, just as they need great hospitality and retail. Thank you, Patri. And this week has been an exciting one in the Portuguese media scene, with the launch of CNN Portugal. I had the pleasure to speak with Nuno Santos, director of the channel. He tells me more about the launch. I think that right now Portugal is a vibrant market that uh, has been changed a lot in the last, uh, I would say, five to ten years. The news channels are really strong in our market. I would say that that are a case study when we we look to the the, the landscape in the European situation. And um, well, I don't want to talk of, uh, for CNN, uh, but uh, I think that when we start to to talk in beginning of uh, this year of 2021, they believe that we have capacity to do sharing with them a strong, not only a strong uh, broadcast channel, that's part of, of the deal, but also a very strong uh, digital operation. And uh, for us, that's also something, I won't say something new, but something very different. That's uh, the things that we are doing until now. And it is quite a big launch, right, in terms of numbers, you know, for Portugal. Tell us a bit more about the number of journalists that have been hired for the for the operation. Tell us a bit about the numbers of CNN Portugal. Well, um, probably it's important to explain uh, something that uh, you don't know or your listeners also doesn't have that information. We belong to a big media group that is the, the most important media group in Portugal called Media Capital. Uh, Media Capital, well, we have a strong entertainment and drama operation with the FTA channel. Right now we are not the leaders of the market, but we were during more than 10 years. And we have also in FTA a strong news operation. So we mixed our news operation in FTA with the operation of CNN. That uh, mean, means that's part of the resources we will share uh, between our FTA and our news channel that is CNN. Well, I'm talking about the production, the planning, things that uh, actually we can share for both brands, I can say it. But we have a team between anchors, executive producers, producers, line producers, of uh, almost 60 people dedicated to the operation of CNN. And of course, that we are uh, sharing also all the net that CNN has across the world. And we are talking about a huge operation. Even that's the most important uh, subject for us, it's to create 
a channel that talk for the Portuguese audiences. So in our daily basis, we will have the issues, the pounders, the anchors that are really connected with the Portuguese audiences. And Nuno, every time I think of Portugal as well, I, I have a feeling that the country is becoming almost like a hub in Europe, but also the close connections to Africa, the other Lusophone countries. Would you say that's one of the strengths as well of CNN Portugal? And you even mentioned that you might collaborate with the, you know, the huge network CNN, but I think Portugal is in, is in such a strategic position, actually. Yes, well, I'm a little bit suspect to talk about that, but I think that we have a very, not only in a geographic perspective, but also because Portugal has a unique position to, to do that connection between the north and the south, even in the language, uh, because, well, we are a small country, of course, we have 10 million of people, but uh, we can connect with the, the Africa countries that speak Portuguese, and some are big countries like Angola or Mozambique, with the difficulties that we know, but uh, with the capacity to grow. Then we have the capacity to work with Brazil, and we have also a CNN Brazil. So I believe that not only in other fields for political reasons, strategic reasons, but also in the communication, we have a role that we can, can put on the, on the table. And I believe that for CNN, that's part of the interest of the Portuguese market. Very much so. And, and Nuno, I mean, you must be a very busy man these days because the network is launching this coming Monday, right? So you, you, must, you must have a crazy weekend ahead. A crazy week, um, but uh, at the same time, uh, it's the most uh, stimulant and um, uh, I would say unforgettable times of uh, our lives. I always said this to, well, to the young people that we have in, on the team. I have this experience. I launched the first news channel in Portugal 20 years ago, and I have it on my front. It's called Sic Noticias. Everyone says 20 years ago, well, it's not possible in a market like Portugal. We don't have enough news. Imagine, we don't have enough news to do a 24 hours news channel. Uh, we don't have enough uh, people on the political field, commentators and this and that. But um, we did it. And I remember that experience for many reasons. But one of the reasons, it's because the, the process of building the grief uh, to tell the people the right things and the wrong things that we cannot do, but the right thing, uh, things to do, trying and the world changed completely in 20 years. 20 years ago, we don't have, well, we have it, but it's very different. We don't have internet uh, like we have it today. We don't have social media. Well, it's, it's another reality. So yes, it's a very busy week and uh, we are in the middle of a political crisis in Portugal. So that means that uh, I would say that we will have at least three months is really busy in our front, but it's an amazing time to launch a, a channel with the brand of CNN. And that's, that makes the difference. In the, last, uh, in the last months, I would say, I've been connected with uh, the advertising markets, uh, talking with the brands, talking uh, with everyone. And I understand that exists a big expectation and that means a big responsibility also. But uh, big expectations about the launch of CNN because uh, the brand is so strong that you need to, to have the capacity 
to do the things like CNN does. It's the some word some sometimes when I have here meetings with the people of CNN, they use the expression, let's do the things like CNN does. That's it. It's such a powerful brand. You know, I think you, you already start with an advantage. You don't need to explain to people more or less what it is. And, and it's so funny, Nuno, you mentioned, it's a perfect time to launch as well, because you, you mentioned the Portuguese political crisis. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of meaty kind of stories to tell your viewers, right? Yes, well, CNN, it's um, sometimes people think that CNN, it's only political in, on the perspective of the politics, but uh, CNN is about people, it's about the stories, it's about the capacity to tell amazing stories. I watched, uh, I think that it was yesterday or the day before, an amazing uh, live from the border between Poland and, uh, and Belarus. It was, well, something tough, really tough, but at the same time you understand that television and digital, well, we have a role to do and it's very important to have in, in this time of fake news, to have uh, uh, news with uh, where the, when the people can trust in your, in your sources, uh, accurate, so that's part of our, of our job. That was Nuno Santos from CNN Portugal. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Another exciting interview I did this week was with Venezuelan DJ, DJ Trujillo. He just released a new compilation on Balearic music from the 80s in the beautiful Ritmo Fantasia, together with Soundway Records. I've been uh, traveling a lot to Spain during the last 10 years. My grandparents were Spanish. It's, it's, my, it's in my roots. I've been like discovering all these tracks around uh, some record shops, flea markets, or just through friends who are, who are diggers in, in Spain. And at some point I had uh, like a nice selections of tracks and through my friend Milos Kaiser uh, from Brazil. He did the compilation On Dati Amor on Soundway Records. So he was visiting here in Berlin and we were listening to music and he was like, man, you should do like a, a compilation with all this amazing Spanish music. So he put me in contact with Soundway Records. I made the project, they loved the idea. So we started working on it. I, of course, started to, you know, to do all this research about how was Ibiza back in the 80s, you know, the Ibiza live, the, the, the sound there, the whole Balearic world there during the 80s. So, of course, I found this uh, amazing club called Ku, which was like the most, like, the most important uh, club uh, back in the days, uh, doing the open air parties and stuff. And there was this amazing guy called Yves Uro, which uh, used to do all the uh, illustrations uh, for the posters or, or, of the parties in, in this club. And I love, uh, I felt in love with the, with, with, with the artwork of this guy. For me, it was a completely Balearic 
So I managed to license the illustrations from this guy for the compilation. And I started to build this like utopic idea or dream about uh, this so this music, this compilation was the perfect soundtrack for the parties that were happening in this club during the, during the 80s. The, there was one, one specific party called the Noche Española. And on this party, they used to play like Spanish music all night. So for me, this was like the, the starting point to tell this story the Spanish Balearic side of the music, no? because most of the Balearic compilations or things that um, have been done are more like international in a way, no? more like a, a American or English tracks. For me, every single track in the compilation is special. I feel like it's a very wide range of music styles all under the Balearic umbrella, you know, because Balearic can be different uh, styles. It is, it is not a, it's not a genre of music. It's more, it's more like a lifestyle in a way, you know? So it's, it, it's just music that it's uh, in a way refreshing, you know? Isamarico Compañía is a track made uh, on the early 90s by the producers from uh, Barcelona, Raúl Orellana and Kim Cuer, uh, two amazing guys. And especially Raúl Orellana was the first guy that started to use uh, Spanish guitars with house beats. This was the guy that, that first uh, did this approach to, to, to try to to make this combination between the pop, house, music, with the Spanish uh, flamenco influence. And the Isamar track is, is very, very funny because it's this girl telling the story about that she's trying to reach the guy, to reach the guy uh, she likes, but she calls the house and, and, her, and the mom of the guy asks her like, he's not there and stuff. And it's just quite funny, I really like it. I will say Marengo is a really special track for me, the, the opening track, because it's a track that um, it's, it's the, for me the most Balearic, properly Balearic track from the compilation, you know? It's like super dreamy, it's, it, it has reminiscence to Moments in Love from Art of Noise. I guess the producer back in the back in the day uh, was of course uh, influenced or using this track as a reference. But at the same time, it's not like trying to copy that track. It's more like getting the influence from that track to do something, you know, like with the Spanish touch. So this track is really special. To me. Gracias, DJ Trujillo.
And on this week's Foreign Desk, Andrew Muller was joined for a special in-depth conversation with the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Albin Kurti, to discuss the unusual challenges the country faces, its tumultuous relationship with its neighbors, and how a prankster becomes a politician. Andrew began by asking the Prime Minister if he was optimistic about a future relationship between Kosovo and Serbia. I think that uh, we all should be optimistic because there is no other way. I believe that we have other disputes, but the centerpiece of future comprehensive agreement between Kosovo and Serbia should be mutual recognition. At present, we have mutual non-recognition. Therefore, we need to recognize each other. And towards this goal, I believe that we could have a declaration of peace initially, where we agree that we're not going to make any attacks on each other, a non-aggression declaration. We should deal with missing persons issue because that is a burning issue and it cannot wait. The anxiety of the families is even larger than their sorrow for their loved ones who are missing over 22 years after the war. And I also think that European Union is an important factor offering a frame for future agreement because it must be in the spirit of EU values, namely rule of law, democratization, facing of the past. And I would insist on certain reciprocity of minority rights across the border, perhaps best would be not only between Kosovo and Serbia, but entire Western Balkan six. On that thought of coming to terms with the past and acknowledging what has gone on in very, very recent history, is that a difficult thing for you to do personally? You were, of course, sentenced to 15 years and ended up serving nearly three. Is that difficult for you personally to get past? Well, uh, we have to be responsible politicians and officials, and I have to uh, represent the people and listen uh, all those who have been having great losses and sufferings during the war. And I consider myself lucky because I'm alive. So I think missing persons issue, then over 10,000 unarmed civilians who have been killed, and among them it's over 1,100 children, those should be the priority. Likewise, we have a big trauma with around 20,000 women and girls which have been raped during the war. So when you take all of this into consideration, my almost three years in prison do not uh, wait much. However, my personal experience, uh, of course, uh, makes me even more credible to have sympathy and empathy with all these people who suffered and lost a great deal. You may not recall this, but we first met in Pristina in October 2004. You were protesting against the UN-sponsored elections of the time, and I can remember us having a conversation as you led a donkey along Nena Teresa Boulevard, draped in a cloth which had Vote For Me written on it. And I'm just wondering, if you go back to that moment, did you have any inclination then that this is where you would end up? Of course not. I had no idea how my future will be. I always knew much better the future of the country than the future of myself. So I knew that Kosovo will become independent one day, but United Nations mission in Kosovo was an authoritarian administration 
without accountability to the local population and no internal democracy in decision-making. However, the waves of political activism brought me first within the system as representative of citizens who voted for us and ultimately in these last couple of years as prime minister. We did meet again in Tirana in 2005 at this conference that had been organised by Arion Veliage. And I did ask you at the time, because I do write all this stuff down, whether you had any ambitions of going legit at that point. And, and you said, no, the Kosovo Action Network, which was then the name of your party, is not going to become a political party. We have higher ambitions than that. Did you change or did you manage to change the system? Well, I think that the system changed after the Declaration of Independence. But also, I must say that I changed as well. Perhaps not in terms of goal, but uh, rather of strategy and experience. In a sense that uh, I was dealing more and more with socioeconomic issues as uh, years went by. And I was more involved in a social democratic way of thinking which I believe ultimately helped a great deal to participate in the elections and turn a civic organization into a political movement and then into political party. Do you think you've been able to bring at all the techniques and philosophies of the disruptor and the outsider to work in government, or do you have to learn a whole new set of skills? I think that uh, there is always this difficult dancing between legality and uh, legitimacy. You can be very legitimate in your goals and actions as uh, political activists, and sometimes that can be considered illegal. On the other hand, you have all set of uh, legal things going on, which might not have much of legitimacy. And I think that uh, in this difficult uh, dancing, we managed pretty well. Of course, we had to learn the skills of administration and running offices in different institutions. But on the other hand, this essential grain of idealism in us remains with us uh, wherever we go and whatever we do. And I'm very happy for that. That was Albin Kurti there, Prime Minister of Kosovo, speaking with Monaco's Andrew Muller. You can hear the full conversation by going to monocle.com slash radio or wherever you get your podcasts from. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Time now for Food Neighborhoods. This time we feature an easy recipe by one of Australia's foremost culinary figures, Donna Hay. Hi, I'm Donna Hay and I wanted to share with you my favorite one pan dinner. It's chicken with burnt lemons and halloumi. And the reason I chose this recipe to share with you is that burnt lemons are magical. When you burn or char the outside of a lemon, 
they become caramelized and sweet and so delicious. And I love when I stumble upon an ingredient like that, that you do not much to except throw in the oven and it turns into something magical. So what I like to do with this recipe is turn your oven up really hot. So 220 Celsius or 425 Fahrenheit, you need it hot and you throw into a baking dish that's lined with baking paper because I hate washing up. I like to use the brown compostable baking paper. 12 sprigs of something like marjoram or oregano or even rosemary, but a woody herb with two lemons that are cut into six wedges and a generous splash of olive oil. And you bake that for 20 minutes until you start seeing the outside sort of rind pieces of the lemon starting to brown. And then to that, you just throw in four chicken breast fillets, some big chunks of halloumi, salty, yummy cheese, some honey drizzled over the top, just a couple of tablespoons, a bit of salt and pepper. And you kind of mix that all in the herb, lemon, olive oil that you've just started to simmer down in the tray, throw it back in the oven. All you need to do is cook it for another 12 minutes and it is absolutely delicious. You have this beautiful, well-flavored chicken, this gorgeous, molten, brown, gooey halloumi, and then that sweet, sweet lemon because their edges are burnt and it's caramelized and it's absolutely delicious. Thank you, Donna. And now Monaco's Nick Moniz heads to Hawick, Scotland's capital of Kashmir, to find out more about the town and its relationship with haute couture. Really, the, the background of the business is based on luxury and the, the, the couture brands. To do what we did for years wasn't working. It's as simple as that. The, the, the industry was in demise, so you've got to do something different. And as I've said before, the middle market was disappearing. We can't compete with the product that's been made in Asia. You know, then it went to Bangladesh. I believe they're gearing Africa up now. So we're never going to compete with low-value product. So you've got to go one way, and that's to the top. And it could be a dangerous strategy if you can't attract the right players, but that we set our stall out. And basically at the end of 2003, that we would build the business around luxury knitwear. I want to ask as well, maybe this is a silly question, but what is luxury knitwear? What does that mean to you? Uh, for, for me, there's the, it's Scottish. And I think that's really important. Um, as we talked about when we were in the factory, we put more cashmere into the garment. We only use the very best fiber. The water that we use here is completely different to whether it is in Italy or in China. We don't have to add chemical softeners. But as well, I think to be luxury now, you've got to be very innovative and use a mix of technology and tradition. And by using these really state-of-the-art electronic knitting machines, where we've got the 40 carriers available, combined with the traditional assembly know-how that we've got, I think that's what really makes a luxury product now. So we're, it's, it's the best of both worlds. You've got the best of the hand skills and the best of the technology. I mean, and then as well, you sort of touched on the skills there, but does that feed into attracting the right players, to attracting the right clients? <laughs> Can you tell us about how you do that and how you appeal to um, these companies? A, a, a lot. I mean, with, Barry, I've worked with, with, with Chanel since 1984. We're one of their original knitwear suppliers. That absolutely counts for something. When people know that you work for someone like Chanel, mm. they, they, they know immediately that you're good. I think since Chanel actually bought the business in 2012, 
with a huge amount of international press at that point, which spurred us along. But also, there's a lot happens due to personal relationships. And personally, I've been doing what I'm doing for over 20 years. And in the luxury fashion world, most people know me. And they may not have worked with me, but they'll know of me. And if they think about Barry, they often will think about, about Clive, because I've been the face with the studios for so many years. So lots done in personal relationships and word of mouth. I mean, I, I, I want to, that, actually, that response has spawned so many different questions. But I mean, <coughs> for starters, can you tell me why Chanel bought Barry? What was, what was the appeal? The appeal, definitely one, because we were one of the original suppliers. Two, the business was financially stable, profitable. It was the parent company who had financial issues. But the big thing for them, as Bruno Pavlovsky said at the time, was we need to save that knowledge and workmanship and handcraft for the future. And they were so clear about it. It's not just for Chanel. It's for all of the couturier and for the luxury industry. They can't allow those skills to die. And, and certainly Chanel and some of the other big couture players have taken a great lead in this. And they're doing it all over to, you know, be it in leather goods, silk, they are taking interest in businesses to make sure they survive and the skills are there. I mean, and what is it specifically, like, why are they coming here? Why are they coming to Hoik? I think they come to Hoik because, I mean, traditionally it's been, it's been the home of Kashmir. It's known as the, the Kashmir town. We've always made knitwear here for, you know, 100 plus years. So there's always been that cachet that this was the place to, to come. The the best knitwear brands in their day, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, were made in this town. So the people in the studios, if you get in the 80s, had probably grown up with some of those brands that had been made in Hoik. So that's the initial attraction, or was in those days. That's not enough now. You know, it's great, yes, we're in Hoik, we're the home of Kashmir, but we've got to offer something that's different. And the only way we can do that is by continually moving forward. And the business has been, I believe, very successful in doing that. When I see even in the last eight years, the complexity of product that we make now compared to then, we are changing at such a pace. And I would say really that Barney Network isn't really a network company anymore. We're a fashion company. And there's a huge difference between being a network producer and a fashion producer. I, I want to change tack here mm -hmm. a little bit. Big, broad question, but why buy knitwear from Scotland? I think the, the, the reason to buy knitwear from Scotland is if you have an understanding of quality and luxury, you would buy knitwear from Scotland. As I've said to you already, Nick, you're not going to get the instant gratification, the candy floss touch. That's not what we're about. We're about investment, longevity. And I've, I've got... A, a, Corny, corny one for you that I, I often use when I speak to people. If it gets to Valentine's Day, I'm getting my wife a rose. I don't buy one that's in full bloom. Mm. I buy one that's in bud. And she waters it and looks after it and it goes boom. It's lovely. That's about Scottish knitwear. It gets better if you look after it. And I, I think the history is great. You know, we've done it for all these years. But when you buy from Barry, you know that we're using the best fibre. Barry gives couture product a, a, a more affordable price. I'm not going to say it's not expensive. But for me, that, that's why you buy Scottish. Thank you, Nick. And a good cashmere is perfect for this very cold weekend in London. 
you are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. The United States is to release 50 million barrels of oil in an attempt to drive down petrol prices. The historic move has been coordinated with China, India, Japan, South Korea and the UK. President Biden told the news conference, bottom line, we're launching a major effort to moderate the price of oil, an effort that will span the globe in its reach and ultimately reach your corner gas station, God willing. On this week's briefing, Emma Nelson was joined from Washington, D.C. by Daniel Jurgen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning energy expert and author of The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Daniel is also vice chairman of IHS. Emma was also joined by Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, may I begin with you? Two and a half days worth of US oil consumption is about 50 million barrels. In the grand scheme of things, how much is that really? Yeah, after weeks and weeks of signaling and speculation, the US has finally announced this plan. It is an exciting plan to coordinate uh, a release of stockpiles from major consuming nations around the world. It's the first time we've really seen anything on this scale. And it's really an attempt by the producing nations to get together in the way that, sorry, the consuming nations to get together in the way that uh, producing nations have been doing so since uh, OPEC was started back in 1960. But if uh, President Biden was expecting uh, to uh, uh, a nice slump in the oil price, unfortunately that hasn't happened. Uh, yesterday we saw the oil price climb 3.3%. That was the biggest gain in two weeks. Now, the plan is for 50 million barrels to be released from the US Treaty Reserve and more from the other nations. The world's consumption of oil is about 100 million barrels a day. So if you put it in context, this is it's not a huge amount of oil uh, in terms of the amount of oil we we consume. And the market certainly seems a little bit underwhelmed by this. It's been expecting uh, slightly uh, more than this. Uh, so that reaction of the markets uh, really uh, makes it clear what they feel about it. Well, it comes to the underwhelming nation of the, the um, nature of of this announcement in a, once again in a moment. But Daniel, can I just um, ask you to comment on what you and Ted in terms of we've never seen anything on this scale among nations such as, well, China is, an, is the country that jumps out, isn't it? It's, if it's the principle here is one, if one thing doesn't work, try another. The thing that didn't work was jawboning OPEC plus to increase production. And when that didn't work, the US stepped into a kind of a new era of energy diplomacy. If there's, a, if there's one block led by uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, now there's another block of consuming nations, uh, and all of them driven by uh, high prices domestically and uh, inflation. It was a real shock to have U.S. inflation hit 6%. And so putting this together, and particularly with uh, China, so just to contrast it, a year and a half ago when oil prices went negative, Donald Trump put a deal, unprecedented deal together with Russia and Saudi Arabia to put a floor under the price of oil. Now Biden has done an unprecedented deal with China and other countries in India, who had not been part of this game before, to put a cap on oil prices. And um, it's still going to be several weeks before they start putting the oil into the market. And uh, it is by far for the U.S. the largest use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in its history. Daniel, just staying with you for a moment, what does that mean for the United States international reputation? That one minute the Trump um, administration will be doing deals with Russia and Saudi Arabia, ten minutes, well, you know, a year later, um, Biden is doing deals with China. Well, what it meant, uh, uh, Trump was worried that the U.S. oil industry, and the U.S. is, by the way, is the world's largest oil producer, would be um, devastated with major economic and political consequences. And Biden is uh, looking at, uh, you know, the Democrats have become very concerned about the 
uh, election uh, that's less than a year away, uh, midterm elections, and uh, nothing riles uh, American uh, voters as much as high gasoline prices. And so, uh, as Ewan said, they've been signaling this for several weeks, and uh, now they acted on it. But we'll see. It still means that they're putting the U.S. Uh, will roughly be putting as much oil into the market uh, over the next several months as the OPEC increases that have been uh, OPEC plus increases of 400,000 barrels a day. So uh, I think it will it will have a, an impact, but um, it is uh, you know it is a very big global market and it's a world that uses 100 million barrels of oil a day. Ewan, let's develop this idea of the underwhelming relation, uh, the reaction to what happened yesterday. I mean, Brent, the, the international crude Brent, Brent benchmark, was up 3.3% higher per barrel on Tuesday. That is not what was the intended effect of this announcement, was it? No, I think the White House will be very uh, disappointed at that uh, that reaction. It does uh, say perhaps something about the old adage of uh, buy the rumour, sell the fact. This often happens in markets after weeks of speculation. The the, uh, the move is already baked into the price. So when it actually happens, uh, there can be something uh, of a sell-off. But certainly, uh, the US will have been hoping for it to go in the other direction. Over the past uh, two months, Brent has risen by 15%. At the start of 2021, uh, we were at $50 a barrel. We're now uh, above uh, $80 a barrel. And of course, for the US consumer, where there's so little tax on petrol, gas as they call it in, in the US, these uh, changes in the crude price really go straight through to the pump. Here in Europe, because we pay a lot of tax uh, on fuel, it's not so obvious. When the price of crude goes up, it only slowly filters through because the bulk of what we pay on the forecourts uh, is taxed. So it's a much less thorny political issue in Europe. But in the US, where uh, the inflation rate is now 6.2%, it is really key for consumers. They drive past these petrol forecourts and they see the price going up daily. And that is putting a lot of pressure uh, on the president. Uh, the uh, the country has 600 million barrels under storage, but it is supposed to be for uh, strategic purposes. It's supposed to be there in an emergency. It's not really supposed to be there for uh, evening out uh, uh, jumps in, in the price of oil. Uh, but uh, President Biden will be hoping that perhaps uh, the, the market uh, reassesses uh, his, his, whether this is going to have a, an effect in the longer term. But at the moment, the market is uh, uh, rather shrugging its shoulders. In, indeed, Daniel, I mean, the whole, whole intention of this was to well, recovery that rising prices was, was actually having. Um, by the sounds of it, it doesn't look as if it's done the, the, the job. I think it's, um, I how, think it's how dangerous pre, I, do you think this is? Uh, Emma, I think it's premature. I think Biden himself said, you know, in a somewhat, you know, uh, cautious way, this will not have an immediate impact because they don't start actually doing this for another few weeks. So as uh, Ewan said, this is clearly there's a psychological uh, factor and prices went up, but the actual physical oil probably won't start moving into the market for another month. And by the way, looking out over the winter, we were starting to see the balances on the oil already starting to improve. So this may uh, accelerate things, but uh, it's, you know, it's, you know, China and the U.S. have this uh, on many issues. They don't agree on this issue. They do agree. Indeed, um, quite a lot of people have noticed this this fact that cooperation of chi with China is being is being you know, seen openly for possibly the first time. And are we looking, Daniel, at a moment when the lines of cooperation are being drawn very clearly now? It's energy and it's the environment, and everything else 
is still in a very tricky position. Absolutely. That's, you know, and that's one of the central themes of, of my book, The New Map, is that all these other interests, the U.S. and China, uh, their interests are continuing to diverge. Uh, this is one place, as you say, on energy, environment, climate. This is one place where they uh, do converge. And, uh, you know, Biden and uh, President Xi had a, their conversation a couple, you know, weeks ago. And, um, you know, they basically raised this question. And both of them have a real stake in uh, not having prices be as high. And as Ewan was indicating before uh, this all happened, uh, people were just a couple of weeks ago talking about $100 oil, which would have had a big uh, inflationary effect around the world. Daniel, there's been mention of OPEC plus holding back oil in retaliation for this. I mean, what's the likelihood of this happening and what would be the effect? I saw a lot of the uh, producers last week at a big conference in uh, Abu Dhabi. And my sense is that that it would be very imprudent of them and unwise uh, to, uh, quote, retaliate. Now, they haven't actually been putting all their oil that they pledged to put into the market because some of the countries simply um, can, cannot meet their, their quota targets. So they've been putting less oil into the market. But I think uh, they're, they're, OPEC uh, is meeting shortly, and I think they'll be very cautious uh, in, in their response. Uh, it's not in their interest to, uh, to elevate the uh, acrimony. And finally, Ewan, will this be enough to make sure that you know, people will be able to afford to buy petrol and that, that Biden will be able to make that all-important connection with the voter in the next few months and years? Well, so far the reaction has certainly been pretty underwhelming. I think one of the most interesting things to analyse over the coming weeks and months will be uh, how the demand picture continues uh, to to uh, unfold. Of course, we've seen uh, ra- rapidly rising demand from very fast-growing economies this year, but there are signs with the fourth wave in, in, in Europe and the increasingly rapid uh, restrictions uh, on people's lives, the lockdown measures coming into place in Austria, the selective lockdowns in the Netherlands and elsewhere. Those, of course, will uh, have a big effect on oil demand. And, of course, we saw in 2020 oil demand really slumping with those restrictions. So if those restrictions start to spread, that will have a big effect on the demand picture and that perhaps uh, may come to Biden's rescue. Thank you all. And finally on the show, it's time for this week's Eureka. David Roger is the CEO and founder of Masterclass, the online learning platform where you can learn from a host of global leaders and celebrities as they teach you their craft. Martin Scorsese can teach you filmmaking, Malala Yousufzi can teach you how to become a change maker, or Ringo Starr can teach you how to play the drums. David worked in business strategy and investment before turning his education and its global power. He spoke to Monaco's Thomas Lewis about the way in which people learn. I was working in venture capital and I actually missed building things. So I went to my boss and I told him that. And I said, you know, I, I'm going to stop working. I'm going to go try to think of an idea. And he basically said, hey, I want to fund you. And I was like, hey, you know, like, and that was such a kind act. But I was terrified because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I didn't want to mess that up. I was raised in part by my grandmother. 
and my grandmother instilled in me she was able to escape from the from the nazis and she instilled in me that education is the only thing that that, some, that someone can't take away from you and i realized i got this one chance one opportunity i want to build something that people can't take away from others i want to try to make it possible for anybody in the world to learn from the best and that's where the idea kind of began and started and then it was about okay, how do we go get the best in the world to actually teach? And how do you make a class from them that is compelling? That was really hard. In the beginning, how you know that you might have a good idea, I think is everybody tells you that your idea is impossible. And I think one of the things I had to learn was there's so much of life where you almost seek praise. In entrepreneurship, you have to make a conscious choice that you're going to go against that, at least at first. And I had to learn to lean into that impossibility. And so I started to make a list of who I would want to learn from. I started running polls online, asking people who they would want to learn from, asking other experts who they would want to learn from, and started sending cold emails and cold calls and trying to find people who you know, who might know somebody. And then once everybody says, you know, no. And one of the first to say yes, and the first one we filmed was the author, James Patterson. I cold emailed, I got to him and then he called me and you know, he wanted them to meet and talk about it, but that probably took a year. And then, you know, we started getting the first few and then it started to snowball and, you know, you started to build that, Hey, if these other people are involved, I might want to be involved too. And now we're at the point where we say no to nine out of 10 people. But I think that first year was really scary and hard because I just kept getting no's. And it wasn't until maybe, you know, we had James Patterson, we got a yes from Annie Leibowitz from Serena Williams. And only after we got a couple did it start becoming actually real. The question started really early on, which was, you know, I love to learn. I've loved to learn my entire life. And if you pull most people around the world, they will love to, they say they love to learn. Ask those same people if they love school and most will say no. And then you start to use why. And you start saying, well, there are certain people I'm really interested in learning from, right? But then what is it and how do you actually want to learn from them? And you quickly start thinking, hey, there are people who are just amazing at their craft that I want to understand how they do it. I want to hear it from them. I want to hear it from them in the place where I would expect to learn from them. So, you know, if it's as it's in her studio, if it's Steph Curry, it's on his basketball court. It's Martin Scorsese, it's in a theater or on set or something. And you then start to craft, okay, I'd, I'd want to be like on the couch with them or I'd want to say, so how do you create that look and feel and how do you let it be raw enough that you'd be fascinated to learn, but also very structured enough that you're structured enough that you feel like it's worth the time and that. And so we, you know, practice that. We tested that a lot. We did test shoots with my parents, really trying to hone that in. And we worked with the instructors a lot, especially early on. And we still work very closely with them. So, you know, as where is it people would want to learn from you? What are the things that you wish somebody had taught you? What are things people always ask you about? And then we come with it. Here's what people actually want to learn from you. And you try to merge those kind of worlds together. And it was trial and error in the beginning, but you know, now it's, we have become, I think, 
pretty good at it. And now it's how do we constantly improve at it? Now we're at the point where we test our classes. So, you know, before, before we even start a class with Ez, for example, we'll talk to people, what do they want to learn? What do they wish to learn? We will watch and read everything she's ever said and done. Then we'll work on the curriculum. She comes with what she wants to teach. We start to map that out. And then after we film it all, we even test it and say, hey, here's a joke that did not land. Okay, why? We have to go fix that. Or here's a part that was su super clear. They want more stuff here. Or this was part that's unclear. So how do we work about it? So we know before class goes out if it's a good class. And if it's not a good class, we will go back and, and film additional things. We, for every class, write down who are the potential students in it. And there's some that are the same for every class, and then there's some that change. So for every class, there's an archetype of a student. And there's somebody who loves to learn. They aspire in their career or their personal life to do something amazing and great. They're interested in more than just one thing, right? And they'll define themselves by more than just one thing. And they are busy so they have other things in their life so to get them to sit and take a class it has to be really compelling and sometimes it's sitting watching the whole class and it's just like, hey, i want to skip to all different parts of it so that's like we have that core person in mind for everything on top of that then we'll add things in so it might be for martin scorsese okay there's going to be aspiring and professional film directors in the class they're going to be screenwriters in the class they're going to be actors in the class so then it's appealing to there too and so we have to figure out and you know this is a hard part for the instructor is saying hey what's the right level of depth and the right level of tactical skill to actually teach in the class and so what they'll do in the class and you'll see this will usually be some portions of the class that are really deep and technical and really applied and if you're in that craft that's gold to you but then what they'll try to do in other parts of class or to weave into those parts are examples from things that anybody has seen so in the james cameron class he's talking about how to in a new actor or actress into a scene, but it's breaking down scenes from Titanic. And so even if you're not a director, you're like, well, this is kind of awesome because I've seen this scene eight times and now, oh my God, I didn't even know that was what he was doing. So we try to make it this interesting to everybody, but at the same time, there is that depth that you can't get anywhere else. If you go back to what you know fuel this was to make it possible for anybody to learn from the best but to do that you have to earn enough to to sustain the business right in, in the and to be able to pay for the, you know it. and so we've tried to choose a cost structure that played into that i think you know one of the biggest changes we made was you know when we launched the business we started selling one class at a time individual classes and our hypothesis was people are actually interested in lots of things. People love to learn. They are the lifelong learners. And so we decided to try a subscription option where you pay $108 a year every month, about about $15. And so you have access to everybody in the world. We, we launched that when we had under 20 classes and you know everybody said, you don't have enough content. That's not going to work, but it did. And you realize that people actually, you know, when they come in for Steph Curry, they're also interested in a singing class from Christina Ag from Christina Aguilera. They're also interested in a filmmaking class from James Cameron. So yeah, we, we found that people actually are broad in their interests. Ideas come from everywhere. So they come from our members, anybody on the team. We have a whole 
a whole way for them to submit and share their ideas. We get cold emails from potential instructors. And then we also have a group that's that what they do is is look across the world to try to actually try to find potential people. And that's talking to experts, that's doing polls, that's reading and watching lots of things. And then it's a cross-functional group that comes together and discusses and debates about bringing this person onto the site. The biggest criteria for us is, is this person one of the best in the world? And would other experts want to learn from this person? And then, you know, and then, and you know, once that's checked, and then you start looking, okay, can this person teach? Are they going to be great at teaching? Is this a subject and field that we want to do it on? And a big part of us is, you know, there's some people on the site that you're going to know and you're going to admire. There's going to be some people on the site you've never heard of. And I think we see our role as, hey, it's an opportunity for us to introduce you to somebody who you probably will love and is a master, but isn't as well known. And so that kind of mix of people that you already know and admire and people are like, Oh, that's really interesting. So, you know, as love that you know her, there'll be some people who don't, but say, hey, look, I see, I know a bunch of these other people on the site. So as this guy be amazing. And then they'll look at what as does and like, oh my God, as is amazing. And so we, we help introduce her to more people too. In the last year and a half in the pandemic, it's been interesting to see what things have kind of spiked and what parts of classes. So we have a negotiation class with Chris Voss, and he was a former lead FBI hostage negotiator, and he has a chapter on tactical empathy. And we saw that spike, and you're like, wait, what's going on? And people are like, well, now I have to negotiate with my husband or my wife or my kids about who has access to the computer. And so how did it? So we saw like that spike, which was really interesting. In the business classes and the Sarah Blakely and the Igers, you know, we saw a spike about, you know, change and how you lead in a time of change and things like that. We also saw people start to garden and plant more. So we launched a Ron, uh, Ron, a Ron Finley class on, gar on gardening. And so it was just interesting to see how things spiked in the, in the pandemic. David Roger there, founder and CEO of Masterclass, speaking on this week's episode of Eureka to Monaco's Thomas Lewis. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and our sound engineer was Jack Juras. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.